Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, Dave Temple. On today's 167th episode of the TZ, here in Season 6, I welcome movie and television star and now debut author John Lindstrom for an in-studio and face-to-face conversation from Los Angeles. So pour yourself a drink, kick up your feet, and relax as John and I discuss, among other things, his new breakout thriller, Hollywood Hustle. First of all, welcome to the Thriller Zone, John Lindstrom. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on this rainy Southern California day. I don't think I've seen rain like this in the whole time I've been in Southern California. You know, I haven't seen rain like this since last year. (laughs) (laughs) When the atmospheric rivers just wouldn't stop. They just kept coming and coming and coming and coming. Well, it's crazy. And flooded my, you know, where I do my audio books. It's a big pain in the ass. With the uh, the zip-up audiobook. The zip-up audiobook yeah. tent. We're yeah. going to talk about that in a little bit because I love that. Um, any any way you can build an audio studio in your house is a fun thing because who wants to leave the house anymore? Right. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> the older I get, the less I leave. So for folks who don't know John, it's uh, John's a four-time Emmy nominee, uh, dozens of studio movies, handful of indie films, and... I th- I think I wrote down in italics thousands of hours in television. Yeah. And it when you showed up it was funny we we're joking about when you look at you and you're like, "Well, how could you've done this huge body of a work?" What did you start when you were like in grade school? <laughs> no, I'm dead. This is my hologram here <laughs> now. Um <laughs> I, you know, I just, the, the, the way you get thousands of hours of work is really doing daytime television and being at the front of a story. So you're working every day. So that's five hours a week and, you know, 52 weeks out of the year. That's how you end up doing thousands of hours. I, you know, I don't think in prime time, unless you're James Garner or Carol O'Connor, who are both gone now, yeah. um, that you can that you can actually get to thousands of hours of television. It's only hundreds. Yeah. Well, the, the cool thing about this show is that we, we feature, of course, the best thriller writers in the world and a debut right here with Hollywood Hustle. Now, I'm going to dig deep on this later, but okay. I will say out of the gate, when you read this, and I've said this before, but I don't say it very often, it's hard to believe this was your first book. Thank you. Yeah. The character building, the story arcs, the process, the mechanics. I mean, I read a lot of books for this show. And I can tell within, it used to be a couple of chapters, then it became a few pages. Now I can tell in the first page if someone's really got the goods. And mm-hmm. this is, I could not believe this was your first book. You had to have oh, been. well with this for a while. Well, I had been, and I had the blessing of a couple of good ed- editors, but I I really started writing when I started writing screenplays. Yeah. And at, though I had always wanted to write a book, I wanted to write books, and I wish I'd started this 40 years ago. I might actually have a few now. <laughs> but um, 
But being in Hollywood and being an actor, I mean, everybody's got a screenplay. Everybody and their dog has a screenplay. Right. But I started learning that, which was in many ways indispensable. It taught me structure. It taught me character development. It taught me how to keep a story moving, how to, how to work with economy. And mainly it taught me how to deal with dialogue, which I think is probably one of my strongest points. Um, and it, and it taught me the difference, as Stephen King says, the difference between plot and story. Two different things. Um, you know, I think of it as plot is is how you get there. Story is what happens. Sure. You know, so we should probably say story and plot. Story is what happens. Plot is how you get there. Yeah. Um, and then character, which is just really, really important to any story because that's what makes it relatable, you know, is yeah. what goes on with that person. So, I mean, having had that advantage of working in a storytelling medium already yeah and learning how to write screenplays how to make films which makes helps you dive even deeper into it and then you're talking about motivations and intentions and you're working with other actors and you're thinking more and more about how to build a story so by the time i got to this i was fairly prepared yeah i wasn't prepared for how long it can take <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and right. how awful it is when you have to put it down. I, I, I worked on it for probably about a, a year and a half. And then I got stuck in a really heavy storyline on general hospital playing twins. Again, they brought back a character they had decided was dead 25 years ago. Yeah. And suddenly I was working so much, I didn't have time to sit down and write. So I had to put it down for about a year and a half. Then COVID hit. So once COVID hit, I was able to pick it up. But then six months later, soaps were the first shows to start up again. Sure. Which, if you ask me, just means we're expendable. <laughs> um, but I know. Let's get the soap guys in. Let's try it out. See how they do. Yeah. <laughs> if they start dropping like flies, well, we'll just cancel the show. Yeah. Um, but so I once that started up, I picked up right where I left off on the show. So I had to put down the book again. And it took me another six months before I could start writing. So in in toto, it was probably four years to get my first real draft out. But in actual writing, it probably took sure. me about two years. Um, and then I met, uh, thanks to uh, the author Alex Finlay, who's just become a great friend. Um, he pointed me in the direction of two things that were really important. Book conferences. Oh, yeah. He said, man, these are the, if you're serious about this, you have to do this. Yeah. You've got to go to the conferences. He told me that the first one I should sign up for is Thriller Fest. 100%. I was going to meet him at BoucherCon because we had just been, you know, virtual and online. Sure. Um, and he was going to BoucherCon in New Orleans to be a panelist. And I bought my tickets and everything was ready. And then COVID hit. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't actually meet him face to face until Thriller Fest 2022. Oh, yeah. He said, listen, you need to talk to an editor. And he had read some of my manuscript. And he said, you know, you, you really should, before you even submit this anywhere, hire a, hire a good editor. And I ultimately wound up with a guy named Nathaniel Marunas, who used to open his own publishing house. And he gave it up because he wanted to spend time with his children. Right. And so he and his wife are both now independent editors. And we cut it down from almost 100,000 words down to about 70,000 words. 
that was kind of brutal. But I realized that no matter how much I feel that these secondary stories are interesting and diversionary and all that, to a reader, they're probably just boring. Well, that's especially an, when we're talking about a thriller. Right, exactly. Yeah. But here's an interesting point, and I thought about and I wanted to make sure I pointed this out to you. Um, I am so and this is gonna sound funny to some of my listeners. At 257, I'm like, oh, here's a guy who gets it. That's the fir- <laughs> that's one of the first things I thought. I'm like, because generally first novels, 340, 360, 390. Yeah. As you croach up to uh, get close to 400, you're like, man, you got, it's got to be really, really good because you're, you want that, you know, you want the turning to happen. So I saw this 250. I'm like, okay, I'm in. Well, that's, again, that's part of the training that I got through writing screenplays. Yeah. First lesson in screenplay. If it doesn't expose character or move the plot, cut it. Yeah. And see where you're at. And I believe it was Joan Didion who said a screenplay is basically just a big ass outline for a book. Yeah. So if you've written the screenplay, you could probably write a book. You right. just got to fill it in, right. you know. Right. But you have to do it in a way that it either exposes character or moves the plot. Right. So, so there's a dance in there, and Nathaniel was just brilliant at showing me how to do that. He said, "I don't think." That this character, this character that you have, actually you had, John, you have like four other characters that are involved in this plot, this conspiracy against Winston Green, my main character, you know, he said, I think they could and probably should go. Yeah. I said, but then we lose all those. He says, see, I had this idea of a metaphor of all the people standing around a successful actor with their hands out. Sure. Which is what it feels like sometimes. Sure. And people who just kind of invent jobs to be on the payroll. Right. They're really not necessary. Right. And I realized they weren't necessary in the book either. So that's how I got down to 257 pages. Um, One of my favorite authors who I have been able to create kind of an email uh, pen pal thing with is Kessel Freeman Jr., Uh, He had written a fantastic book called Go With Me. He's based up in Vermont. All of his books take place in rural Vermont. I found his book in a little, tiny little independent bookstore in Washington, Connecticut, and contacted him in the hopes of optioning it as a movie. Right. And somebody else had gotten to it before him, but we developed a friendship. And I said, hey, listen, can you, uh, would you read my first manuscript? And Jeep Castle, it only comes in at 400 pages. Yeah. <laughs> and Castle goes, I'm 80 years old. I'm not going to read 400 pages. Jim. Yeah. That was I before, might not live that long. I might not live that long, <laughs> you know. And he said, but I, I, then I realized it was only 400 pages because I had formatted it incorrectly. That's how green I was with writing a book. I had used some template from my computer and here it was 400 pages. And somebody else said, Hey, you know, you really, your margin should be a little, a little narrower (laughs) and your book, you know? So once I figured out how to do it, it, it dropped down to under 300 pages. And from under 300 pages is what I submitted to Nate. And that's what we got down to 257. But even Castle was like, Dude, you got way too much here, man. Yeah. You know, and and he writes thrillers, so he knew what he was talking about. Well, you know, this is interesting because you, what's the one phrase 
is writers we always hear. You've heard, if you haven't heard it yet, you will, and you're going to hear it over and over again. Write what you know, mm-hmm. right? Now, I've always taken that to task because I think a good creative can write whatever they want. I've always had that thing. Well, I have an imagination. I can write whatever I want. However, having done a lot of pitches now, as you have as well, and you meet people who are in the know and can make your career go, mm-hmm. will say, and I'm, I'm going to use an example and this because this dials it in really quickly. I'm at Thriller Fest 2019. I approach a very, very well-known producer and I'm pitching a book that I'd written a couple of years prior about a female detective in Hollywood. And I'm sitting there and I'm three sentences in. My listeners may have heard this before. I'm three sentences in and he does this. He's like, uh. <laughs> and I'm like, Tony, you okay? Yeah, yeah. What? Um, I, go ahead. Yeah, finish. Yeah. And I finish and he go and I go, and it's a speed dating kind of a pitch, right? Yeah. I'm like, what do you think? He goes, no, would never pick this up in a New York minute. And I'm discouraged, but I'm trying to be cool like it doesn't bother me. But I'm like, okay, well, why is that? He goes, well, have you ever been a cop? No. Ever been a detective? No. Anybody in your family a cop? No. A detective? No. (laughs) And you're clearly not a woman. This is really not boding well for you. (laughs) Yeah. He goes, if I want uh, a detective in Hollywood, I'm going to go talk to Michael Conley. And that's when I went, oh. Yeah. And I walked away going... There you go. Yeah. Write what you know. Have the, have something to back it up so that as I'm reading Hollywood Hustle with you, I'm like, well, John's nailing it here because he's writing yeah. what he knows. This is an actor and he's in Hollywood. And it, it, so it, yeah, it I think so well. It, well, thank you. And, and, and I do believe that it's true. And yes, I could take it to task to a degree. Yeah. Um, but I'm a creative, you know, the only way you're going to get around probably the most important aspect, which is authenticity, um, is with a lot of research. And I mean, sitting in the back of cop cars and, and really making friends with police, you know, if you want to write that kind of a book, if you're, if you don't have that background, I mean, Connolly was the crime reporter for the LA times for many years before he even wrote a book. Right. Um, and he's one of the, he's, he's really one of the best ones around. Um, I had the privilege of working on his series Bosch yeah. for a season and worked, spent some time around Michael. He's a great guy. Michael, <laughs> Michael Conley, that's a great scene. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going, you wrote Bosch, man. Yeah. You know, Bosch is one of the things that got me hooked on LA crime and LA noir and all those things that led me to uh, reading a lot of books like that. But I think the writing what you know almost has a, a double benefit. One is the authenticity factor. Yeah. Yes, you're you're going to be able to write about stuff that nobody can argue with. The other part of it is it makes it a lot easier to write it. True. You know, why why push a boulder uphill true, if you true. don't have Good to? Point. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, as an independent filmmaker, you know that making and releasing an independent film is like pushing a boulder uphill yeah. by yourself. There's yeah. nobody to help you do it. And if you're writing a book about a subject, and I've found this even with my second book, which I'm about halfway through now, 
Um, I switched it up considerably because I realized I don't know who this guy is. I decided on a main character from a world that I don't know. And even if I, even if I delved into that world as deeply as I should, I still wouldn't understand it on a cellular level the way another person would. So, so this is so, clearly so I switched it up so it. it'd be it would become something more relevant to what I understand. Got it. And the so this is clearly a standalone. Uh, Winston's not coming back. No, no. Yeah. I think there's nothing sillier than a, a crime fighting actor. Yeah. You know, I don't think that would be. <laughs> I think that would be pretty silly <laughs> to, to go. But you know, my agent did ask me that. Yeah. Well. <laughs> But I love Winston Green. Is he coming back? I said, you know, I said, my my series is, and this is how I pitch the book. I, yeah. I do envision Hollywood Hustle as the first in a in a series of novels about Hollywood. Got it. Or LA-based crime fiction thrillers. Sure. Where the characters might inter intertwine here and there. Like, you know, I introduce a character in Hollywood Hustle just by mentioning him. And yeah. that's the person I'm going to use for my second novel. But the the character that really is, that the series is about is Hollywood. Right. You know, and Hollywood, anybody who's spent time here, as yeah. you know, Hollywood is a, it's a tough nut and it's a, it's a hard friend to make. Yeah. But it is a character. And th- there's a great uh, way to bounce off of this. I mean, besides being an actor and working with A-list directors and huge stars. And I, I'm reading that you, in your spare time, if you want to call it that, you've dabbled in indie films mm-hmm. and also as a drummer, which I love. So that took me down this road. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, because it's all backstory to who you are and what you bring to the story. And then I run across the High Lonesome, mm-hmm. which is your band. Yeah. Still Still around no, or no? No, okay. we, you know, we, okay. we, uh, in fact, our lead singer, Larry Poindexter, he was our chief songwriter and lead singer. He has one of those fluid voices that I just hate him for. Yeah. Because <laughs> he has it and I don't. Yeah. But um, he just recently rebuilt our entire website. I'm not really sure why. He just wanted to do it. But um, we were, we were a group of unemployed actors mainly looking for something creative to do between gigs, you know, because if you're an actor out of work, what, what do you do? Right. You know, and, and none of us wanted to drive cabs. So we took our, Oh, you play the drums, John? Yeah, I got a kit. You got a guitar, you got some mics, you know? And so we started playing actor parties and things like that. And then Larry started bringing in songs and then other people started bringing them in. And then we all started working them up and to the point where they were almost group compositions and then we, you know, it, it, like I say, I, I think everything you do prepares you in some way, whether you know it or not, for what comes next. And we were playing, I, I think we played somebody's birthday party way out in the valley where they called the police and everything. And the yeah. police liked the sound. So they sat out on the street for about a half an hour before you know. they came in and broke up the party. <laughs> That, that's what they told us. I'm going to go with that. Um, but somebody said, hey, you know, I uh, I booked bands into the Central, which is now the Viper Room right. on Sunset. You know, I know they got an open slot on Tuesday. You want to, you guys want to play? Sure. So we went over and played the, the old Central Club on Sunset Boulevard 
as the opener for Chucky Weiss. Now, Chucky, you might recall, Ricky Lee Jones had a song called Chucky's in Love. In lo yeah. That was Chucky. Oh, my gosh. And Yeah, and he played every Tuesday night at 9 o'clock or something at the Central. That was his L.A. gig. And we opened for Chucky. And Chucky's band was a kick-ass, killer, bluesy rock band. Chuck was this guy who would walk through the audience as an intro with these round, dark glasses on, his hair down to his ass, and this long face. He had like this long chin and a small mouth, but then he opened it and this gigantic voice would come out. But they realized that a lot of the people who showed up came to see us because all of our friends showed up. Oh, yeah. And we were friends with all of the young talent of Hollywood. You know, we were like the princes of the city. But the princesses showed up. Yeah. And I mean, it was Apollonia, Nicolette Sheridan, and, and Mariska Hargitay, and Jennifer Aniston, and Lisa Kudrow, all before they were famous. Wow. And they would all show up in their hot pants yeah. and dance in front of the stage, and all the guys would show up and buy drinks for them. Sure. And that's where they made their money was at the bar. <laughs> so they said, by the end of our, our set, they said, you guys want to come back next week? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we wound up becoming one of the regular house bands at the Central. And that led us to uh, a little record label called Spark Records, and they signed us to a record deal. I, and Two this, hits on the Billboard Hot 100 well, back when that was a thing. No, and dude, this is why I want to drill down on this, because... Mike Rivers Radio, that song came out, uh, or the thing, uh, Feel Free to Do So is the song I'm thinking about. That was about. the album. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was 95. Mm hmm Did you get any, you got major airplay if you hit uh, did, 100. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I'm landing in um, New York in 95 at the number one country station. And I'm thinking to myself, when I heard, when I'm reading this, I'm like, our pads in some way, shape or form had to have, if not met cross somehow they probably did we were on the you know kind of the americana uh charts i but guess we you know but that, that also there music. was a lot of crossover yeah. with country yeah so yeah i i wouldn't doubt it if if you guys played one of our songs from the album at least once and and what's here's what's interesting the high lonesome the phrase high lonesome mm -hmm. pops up time and time and time again with all these different country music stars as their song or a reference or mm -hmm. a title. Yeah. Anyway. And that was, it was really a, it was a mandatory name change that we had to do. We had been known as Johnny Sacco with an exclamation point because the keyboard player, Phil, um, he was a fan of this live action Japanese kids show called Johnny Sacco and his giant robot. <laughs> You can actually find it on YouTube. It's hysterical. <laughs> the little Japanese kids running around, Johnny Sacco! You know, <laughs> it's hilarious. I'm getting laughs from the gallery here. And you, I think he's seen it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but there, you had it, to lose that we name? We got signed under that name. And then another band from, I think, Indianapolis filed an injunction against us because they were called Johnny Sacco. We're Johnny Sacco. And, <laughs> yeah, we're we're Johnny Sacco. Yeah. You're not Johnny Sacco. <laughs> and so and it turned out they had signed a label deal before ours. And so they had been able to grab that name. So we all got together with the two ladies who ran the record company and the band, and we said, Well, what are we gonna do? What are we how are we gonna figure this out? And it was Larry Poindexter 
who just kind of offhandedly said, the high lonesome. And we all went, that's it. Let's grab it right now. Just out of nowhere. Just out of nowhere. I mean, we were coming up with the need, the actors, the yeah. hiatus. You know, yeah. I mean, we'd had so many names along the way before we even settled on Johnny Sacco that we, we were just like, let's just get it over with. Yeah. Jethro Tull came up with their name almost the same way. They kept coming up with names and somebody else would have it. So they just started. And then people didn't want to book them anymore. Right. So they started changing names just to have a new name. So people would think it was a new <laughs> band. And then they'd show up and play. It's you guys again. Yeah. <laughs> you Aqualung guys again. <laughs> let's uh, let's circle back to something because did you, was your real big first foray into acting uh, strictly soap operas? Uh, it was my first break. Okay. That's yeah. The yeah. It was a syndicated show called Rituals. Okay. First syndicated drama ever. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. After that, there were a plethora of them, you know, all these Western shows right. and things like it, cop shows and things that came out. Um, but it was the first syndicated drama. It was produced by a company called Telepictures. And they took a chance on the on the space, as it were. Now I know what draws. Uh, I've dabbled in acting, not not even close to what you do, but so I understand the creative pull. But was soaps was that genre something that you went? Oh, you know what? That would really be great fun because it has it's its own world separate from movie acting. Yeah, it's a very separate uh, kind of subculture yeah. and medium. Um, no, I never really even considered it. To me, it was oh, just wow. it was just a way in. Uh, you know, it was a way to get me out of the restaurant business, really. And it did. Waiting tables, you mean? Or uh, at that point I was bartending at yeah. a place called Morton's, um, which was kind of a big star hangout, you know, and you'd see studio heads doing lines of coke on the bar and stuff. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. You know, it was the early eighties. Yeah. Um, but I just, you know, if you're an actor, you have to work. And if you don't have work, then what you're doing is looking for work. Because right. the first question anybody asks you is, what are you working on? Right. Oh, I'm not doing anything. Well, right. aren't you trying to do something? Aren't right. you doing a play? Aren't you doing something? Right. Nowadays, everybody's taking their phones and making short films, you know. Right. So at least you can say that. But um, I, I just saw it as a way to get into being a professional actor in Hollywood. And that's what it became for me. And how many years in soaps? Well, off and on, I guess that one was only about six months. But I mean, in a year, you know, but cumulative, cumulatively, I mean, off and on, in and out, it's been, you know, it's been a part of my life for 40 years. Wow. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a statistic in Hollywood Hustle where Winston Green uh, in some downtime talks about how he had looked up the attrition rates in Hollywood. Yeah. And this is true. More than 70% of the people on IMDb can claim exactly one credit, one credit. Your average <clears throat> lifespan of a star's career is 20 years and it's shorter for the women. So the attrition rate is really high. Yeah. So when I look back, and see that I've been working steadily since 19, February of 1985. Wow. And haven't had to go back and wait tables, haven't had to drive an Uber, haven't had to do anything to, to make ends meet since then. 
man, I, I just consider that a stunning success. I mean, I pretty much start the day by dropping to my knees <laughs> and saying, thank you for letting me have another day here. This would be a good place for those who uh, may not be familiar with John Lindstrom's work. Let's take a look at his, what is called his speed reel on your website, johnlindstrom.com. Yeah, John Lindstrom in two minutes or less. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take a look right now. It should be in a property envelope with a voucher attached, marked as investigatory evidence in order to, you know, ensure the chain of evidence. I mean, you could have bought that on the way over here. Since Casper's remaining interests have been voided, I can provide you the same parcel, same price, seven million. The same? We were quoted 10. Not by me. Believe me, I get it. And I want you to know that we're going to cover everything. It's the least we can do for your, your husband's sacrifice. Then I am going to have a full-blown nervous breakdown. Is that the same nervous breakdown you've been working on for 25 years? Bosch has no say in this proceeding. Yeah, well, he sure doesn't act like it. Law is clear. No seat at the table. He's a helpless spectator watching his career crash and burn. I just tried you an hour ago. Some strange woman answered. <laughs> My sister. Well, I've been a little worried. Rachel and I read about the heart attack, and we hadn't heard from you in such a long time. And how long did it take you and your team to write and test that answer to your attorney's question about whether or not any money you illegally wrest from my client Objection. will improve your the life. The attorney is... You think you know a person after 20 years of marriage and then she comes up with this cockamamie scheme. What I don't understand is why loving a man means you have to wiggle when you walk. You know, I think I've detected a little wiggle in your walk lately. Bullshit. Looking for a man with one ear. Can't you see we all have ears on our heads? I just want to make this country great again. Now that is, I, I don't know which one I was attracted to more. Now my wife and I sat down and watched this. <laughs> I'm going to bring her up in a second. She's a big soap fan. I was drawn to True Detective because that that yeah. whole series has just been, I mean, it started off with Matthew McConaughey and uh, Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Yeah. Then it came along, wasn't Vince Vaughn and your- Season two. Season yes, two. Vince Vaughn and Colin Farrell. Yeah. Which was which is where you showed up. And then three is- Season three was um, uh, was Mahershala. like a multi, uh, multi-generational thing. It followed two detectives yeah. over about 30 years yeah. or so. Stephen Dorff and uh, I forget the other actor right now. And now it's, uh, we just started watching it, is uh, Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. Yeah. yeah. But back to your, how did you like True Detective and, and what, what did you take <clears throat> away? What, what is that world like for, for those of us who don't get a chance to work in a soap and then, for instance, a, a, an episodic like that? What is the difference in that, those two different worlds? Uh, you know, from a the most simplistic standpoint, it's downtime. You know, there's not a lot of downtime on a soap. You right. Know, you're pretty much running from the moment you get to the building. But any kind of single camera show, like True Detective, like Bosch, any film, yeah. um, there's, there's always going to be a certain amount of downtime because they just have to switch up the lights and they have to shoot coverage, you know, close-ups sure. of everybody. And make allowances for the fancy camera move that follows you into the room, things like that. Yeah. Um, that was, that was one of my favorite moments actually because of downtime on true detective, because we were shooting all day in 
what they call the cave house. It's a, not a Frank Lloyd Wright, but the Lloyd Wright house in Los Feliz. And it looks from the outside like a, like a tri or a diagonal diamond shaped cave right. entrance, right? It's a beautiful home. We were there all day. It was me, Colin, and uh, Ronnie Cox. And ultimately it was cut entirely from the, from the season. Uh, because Nick Pizzolato, the creator, has, he's a very instinctual writer, and he just decided to shift gears and take it from where it began, which left some clues about the beginnings of California and black magic and things like that, and took it in more of a grounded L.A. noir kind of approach. But we spent all day shooting this one scene in this house, and we're waiting between setups and it's me and Colin and some other people. And one of the crew guys comes over and he says, did you know that this house is apparently where the black Dahlia was murdered? I said, excuse me. <laughs> and, and he goes, yeah, down in the basement, the doctor who apparently killed her, this was his house. Oh, wow. I said, really? It's a down in the basement. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's right down through there. And I look over at Colin, who is already looking at me. Yeah. And I go, you want to go look? <laughs> sure. And he goes, oh, yeah, I want to go look. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know? And Colin's a very, he's a very, uh, he's just a very friendly kind of, you know, uh, loquacious guy. Yeah. And, and so we go downstairs and we're walking around in this basement. And I, as I recall, there was kind of an open space down there and everything's dirt and cobwebs and exposed beams and everything. And I looked over at him and the look in both of our eyes was, I just got a chill. Yeah. And he's like, let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a memory memory that I'll take from that show with me forever. Yeah. And, you know, and just to be a part of something that really was such a groundbreaking, powerful, genre-bending uh, piece of entertainment. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it really made an impact and is still doing it today. That's a great phrase. And that is so true. They are bending the genre because you you started off thinking, oh, it's just another detective story. But boy, does it boy, no. bend no. and twist. And, and the new season is just wackadoo. I'm waiting for them all to drop because that's when I want to binge. You're, oh, you're yeah, I'm going to wait for yeah. all of them to drop. Yeah. Um, but season two at the time, you know, it was met with a little bit of kind of a lukewarm critical reception. And I think a lot of people felt like, oh, well, it's, it's not the first season. It wasn't like the first season, nor was it meant to be. It is an anthology series. But since then, and, and I know because of the residuals I get, <laughs> people have begun to revisit that over the last couple of years. And I see this online, people reaching out going... We underestimated this this show yeah. when it first aired. And that's true. If you watch season two again, it's a completely different experience than the one you had when you first watch it. It's so layered and so full of symbolism and, and strange character motivations that are mysterious the first time, but make a different kind of sense this time around. You know, I, I encourage anybody to go back and take another look at that. And it's, it's really quite a, 
extraordinary piece of television. Well, I will do that. And not just because you're sitting here saying that, because <laughs> I, I remember when the first one came out, it was so unique in of itself that you thought, and every once in a while you run across this with the show, you can't, you guys, no, 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 you can't get close to that. Yeah. And yet they do. Yeah. Somebody yeah. somewhere comes along with something that goes, uh, and, and to your point, you and I and Tammy, uh, my wife, is forever saying, "Oh, you—that's right. You gave it one shot and you didn't like it." Well, I went ahead and, and I devoured it. I'm like, "Yeah, well, good on you." And then uh, we'll come back and she goes, "You want to give it another shot?" And then nine times out of ten, I'll, I'll step back into it to your mm -hmm. point and I go, "Wow, yeah, I missed something. I wasn't paying attention. I was ex here. It is. I was expecting that feeling, that mindset from the first one, for mm -hmm. instance." And you can't do that because it's a whole, it's, yeah, it's got the same title and it's got some similarities, but it's its own but world. But it's, it's its own thing, you yeah. know, but good architecture does that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you find new things in a building you never saw before or in a good city you've yeah. never seen before. It's like, it's like a trip into New York. Wow. I never noticed that building half a block from my house before. Yeah. It's stunning. You know? Yeah. It's the same thing. Um, before I get back, I want to go back into the book a second, but I want to make sure I mentioned your wife because your wife is also uh, Katie McLean. She's mm -hmm. also uh, quite the soap actress. She's and is she still doing that now today? Uh, here and there, yeah, okay. yeah. She's uh, you know Katie. I call her the Dynamo Genius, um, and she is some sort of a genius. I I don't know what kind yet, but I just know she's far and above anything that I can do. She's very involved in live theater. She has always loved the theater. That's really what got her started and why she moved to New York to begin with, which is where we met. Um, but she's, uh, she's now running uh, a theater company, company called Axial Theater. It's based just outside of New York City. So there's a lot of commuting going on yeah. in, in, our, in our lives. Um, but she took it over during COVID. It was founded 20 some years ago by a playwright friend of hers from the old Michael Howard acting studios named Howard Meyer, um, who is a playwright. And she, you know, he was ready to kind of walk away from it and, but he wanted to leave it in good hands. And he thought of her and asked her and she worked up a pitch for herself to, uh, to go and take over this theater company and pitch the board with her ideas. And they said, you're just what we need. And they've already had their their first post COVID um, production, which was John Logan's Never the Sinner, which is all about the Leopold and Loeb case, which she cast in a multi diverse way. Yeah, and uh, I'm not quite sure what they're going to do for their second production yet, but um, she's turned the thing around. Wow! And uh, yeah, it's really really great. Does she? And, and and I don't know this. That's why I'm asking. Did you guys have you ever appeared in a show or a movie together well that's how we met we met on as the world turns okay got gotcha. you new york shot out in brooklyn yeah. how about something completely different like uh, a movie and since you have an indie film we tried but okay. we haven't been able to pull it off yeah. but you'd love to do that oh you? sure yeah yeah like i say the dynamo genius any day let's think i'd love to do this because i i'm a an indie filmmaker uh, closet indie filmmaker do you how do you see that machine now? Indie films? Yeah. Versus the way, when we were start dabbling in it back in the day, you had to go find your own money and get all your own people and mm -hmm. this, that, and the other. 
with social media being the way it is, with AI being the way it is, with uh, accessibility, do you see it? Do you see it easier or harder now? I see it as as uh, monumentally difficult as it's always been. You know, um, you know that was one of the 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 pluses again of working on True Detective because I did a lot of scenes with with Vince. Yeah. And, you know, Vince and his friend John Favreau, yeah. you know, are two of the guys of a very small crowd who pretty much reinvigorated and reinvented American independent cinema. You yes. know, they did it with Swingers. Yeah. And which is still just a hysterical movie. And he is hilarious in that in that film. Nobody really does what Vince does. No. You know, he brings a thing with him. But we talked a little bit about that, you know, and... We talked about some of the other films that he had done, but, you know, specifically, I, I had to say, hey, man, I got to give you props here, you know, because I don't think the American independent scene would be anything like it is without contributions like Swingers, you know, and he was very, he was very appreciative to hear that. Um, but he also said he would never go back to it because it's just too hard. It's too hard. I mean, he's doing a lot of smaller films now. But they're films that he can do, you know, his name lends sure. the money. And sure, so, sure. you know, you can get some support. But independent film, it, to me, it seems real independent cinema. The only thing that's changed is the delivery system. Yeah. But it's still up to the filmmaker to go out and raise the money and get the people and the equipment and put it all together and push that boulder uphill. And it is a hell of a boulder. It's a hell of a boulder. It's the biggest boulder, you know, that, you know, it's the size of a big, like a, like a, like a motorhome. Yeah. I mean, it's huge. <laughs> and people always come into it going, how hard can it be? Right. I did the same thing. Sure. And I've talked to other filmmakers and say, do you have any advice? And I'm like, yeah, don't. Don't do it. Yeah. No, oh, well. And but they I've say, got a camera and yeah. I've... How hard can it be? Right. Say, you know what? There's nothing I can say, which is exactly what you need to be able to go out and do it. If you're going to do it anyway, then you have to do it. Sure. And I mean, that's advice that I would give to anybody. If you got to go make a movie, if you got to write a book, if you have to write a play, if you got to swim across the Atlantic, do it. Yeah. For all we know, this is the only time around this spinning little globe we have. So make it count. It's so funny you should say that. I say that all the time. As far as we know, as far as we know, this is the only chance we get. You know, I think that there's something after this. I, I do just too. don't know what the hell it is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now let's let's di dig back into Hollywood Hustle because now I want to tell you a few things uh, that I really loved about it. Okay. First of all, uh, easy easy one right off the top. Thank you. Great play product <laughs> placement. Yeah. Love all the movie references. Thanks. Uh, and it's so interesting. And I. I have, I've had some fun with mine. I, I make my notes to myself and I'm going, there's, <laughs> there's so many different movies that I, uh, I've got, holy shit, too close to home and this, that, and the other. And oh my God, there's one of my <laughs> favorite. You made some copious notes in oh, there. Oh yeah. I'm like, oh, here's one of my favorite movies. Glad I, did I not... didn't want that book back. I mean, <laughs> when I saw Steve McQueen and this was on page 16. So I'm, I'm very, very hardly into it. I'm I'm like, oh, Steve McQueen. Okay. This guy's a guy after my own heart, Steve McQueen. <laughs> and I thought, and I said to myself, oh, I literally said this, John, what would the chances be if you were to have like the car from Bullet 
No, that'd be too close. You know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> only to find out later. Well, only to find out. Yeah. yeah. But I don't want to ruin anything. But boy, just, all right. So there you go. Um, stylistic influences from the books and the films. Um, well, you know, from the book, for the book, I'm a big fan, especially of Elmore Leonard. Oh, God, I yes. love Elmore Leonard's books. Um, everybody knows Get Shorty. Yeah. Everybody knows 52 Pickup, which was definitely an inspiration. My favorite Elmore Leonard book is Freaky Deaky. <laughs> and and, I, and it was made into a film at one point, uh, you know, when um, uh, Danny DeVito and his partners, Barry, I think it was Barry Sonnenfeld, uh, they all, they bought the entire library. And so they were making Get Shorty and, you know, all those movies. Uh, they did produce that movie at some point, but to me, Freaky Deaky nails the Elmore Leonard thing better than anybody. But he also wrote about LA. Yeah. Um, I'm also a huge fan of Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and yeah. James N. Kane, the people that really invented LA noir. There's something really specific and seductive about LA and noir together. Yeah, right. And I fell in love with noir films. You know, to me, the greatest noir film that the Hayes Code period wanted to be is Body Heat. Oh, yeah. With William Hurt and Kathleen and Turner, Turner yeah. you know, where there's a real femme fatale, yeah. where there's a real guy who falls in love with the wrong person, and right. they both are driven by greed and avarice. You know, it's all the things that people shouldn't be, but they are absolutely the very best examples of it. So, I mean, stylistically, that all feeds into what I like to write and what wound up in here. Um, <laughs> I like to say, maybe I'm trying to kill Hollywood one book at a time. <laughs> uh, I do want to be honest about it. Yeah. I think a lot of people tend to kind of skirt the issue a little bit, and I don't think we need to do that. I think we should call it for what it is. Hollywood is a dangerous place on a lot of levels simply because people come here wanting so much from it. And so they're willing to give a lot of themselves to it for not a whole lot in return. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think, I hope I did that. I think I, I think I've done that and I'm going to do it more in the next one, but I wanted Winston green um, to be a character that, is a bit of a cautionary tale. Yeah. But he's also a, a redemptory tale. You know, he's somebody who shows us all, no matter how far down the cliff you, you fall, you can pull yourself back up and you can find a new way to a new life if you do it. And that is a great message that I took from this book. I mean, I love how you wove family throughout, even though good bits of it was dysfunctional, but mm -hmm. then aren't we all? Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that, but Which is true of, of of the Hollywood family. Yeah. You know, the curse of the Hollywood baby is a real thing. Right. You know, if you come from a, a family with very famous parents, it's hard on those kids. Yeah. How do they find their, find their own identity? Many of them fail. A lot of them just leave and find their identity that way, which is probably the healthiest way to do it. The cast of characters that surround Winston... <laughs> are about is about the time you think they're just pure utter goofballs they they kind of shift on you a little bit which i like and you think this you think they're a band of brothers unto themselves until 
the seams start popping and then mm-hmm. you realize they all take their own motivations. And right about the time that I thought, and I, I'm being real careful that I don't give anything away, that I thought things were going to, oh, they're going to go this way. You use the word redemptive and so forth. And then you see that little reflection of the redemption or being able, you're like, can this guy be that much of a cup? And then mm-hmm. things shift. And so by the end of the story, you're like, yeah, mm. yeah. It's, uh, you know, I have basically two groups. You know, I've got Winston and his friends, his band of brothers. Right. Uh, you know, the the stuntman. Grover, Love and, him. yeah, what a what a great guy, and his yeah. wife Lauren, yeah, um, and and his buddy Teddy, Teddy, Teddy Beauregard from New Orleans. I was hoping you'd you do know. the accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they to me they are emblematic of the people who want to who come to Hollywood or from L.A. who want to accomplish things for the right reasons, and they do. Those people exist here. I've got a group of friends here that I, you know, I. I, I there's I have more fingers than I have really tight close friends here. Yeah. And but that's for a reason. Now, our bad group, our group of villains, they have banded together to do something for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Both groups originally at their heart wanted the same things. They wanted to succeed. They wanted the riches. They wanted the they wanted the great success of what Hollywood and L.A. can offer you. And it is a stunning example of, of overwhelming riches and glory in this city. And that's why a lot of people come here for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And those people are often looking for shortcuts. Those people want to get a piece of it without really earning it. Basically, they just want to take it. And that's what this bad group is. Now, one of those people actually came from the same place that my foster son did, being Holly, Holly Grove Orphanage. Oh. My son, Paul, who has been with me since he was nine and is about to turn 40. Yes, I'm that old. Um, <laughs> he, uh, I met him when he was uh, in foster care at Holly Grove Orphanage. Oh, wow. It's since, yeah, it used to be an orphanage. It's since been converted basically to placement because they couldn't afford to keep the orphanage going. I think that's something this country should do. If I can digress for a moment. Sure. I think we should invest heavily in orphanages because it does give kids who don't have a home, a sense of a home, which is one of the reasons I, I make uh, films for kids in the spotlight, which is all about helping foster kids tell their stories through film. Oh, I love that. It's a, yeah, it's a, uh, a not-for-profit founded by a woman named Tai G Charity. And every year or two, I either direct or produce one of their short films starring kids from Kids in the Spotlight. Um, So yeah, I feel strongly about it, but it gave me a great basis from something I knew (laughs) to give a character. Now, Paul has grown up to be a terrific man, um, but the character who comes out of Hollygrove doesn't grow up to be such a great guy. Yeah, He grows up wanting everything that he gets a little taste of and never really understanding what it took to get it. So I tried hard to show both sides that there are great, wonderful people in this city and in this business who are the kinds of friends that you want. But there's also this very dark element of people who will rip you off 
every chance they get. Yeah. You know, one of them was just sent to prison. He produced a, a film that a, a friend of mine directed, actually. He scammed something like $600 million. Whoa. Pretending to be somebody who was setting up films at Netflix and Prime and, you know, and all these things. And, and he's been locked away for the next 30 years or something. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. like the Bernie Madoff of Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about putting him in the book at one point, then I felt like, nah. <laughs> now he didn't he doesn't deserve the ink. <laughs> well, you know, this might be a great place for us to take a short break so our sponsors can uh, pop in here. And when we come back, John and I are going to, you know, that little thing I do on the show called If This Scene Could Talk. We're gonna do that. <laughs> so we're gonna take a scene from Hollywood Hustle right here on the Thriller Zone. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's the Thriller Zone. We're with John Lindstrom, and we're talking about Hollywood Hustle. And so what I thought I'd do is grab a chapter. It's called If This Scene Could Talk. It's chapter 31. It's taking place in Venice Beach. And uh, we we truncated it so we could just have some fun here because this is just about goofing around. And it's in between these two guys. It's a phone call. Yeah. Should I set it up a little yeah, bit? Yeah, set it up Okay, well, this Winston, otherwise known as Wynn, has, he's desperately trying to raise money to get his daughter back from these kidnappers to find some amount that they might accept. And so he's just sold his car um, <laughs> at one of these lots down on Venice, uh, on Lincoln Boulevard in Venice, there's all these used car lots. Yeah. And it's the kind of place where you can drive onto the lot and say, give me cash. Right. And they'll give you cash for your car. Um, and so that's what he's done. And he's with his friends, Grover, Washington. No, not the musician. Not Grover, Washington, the stuntman, and his friend, Teddy Beauregard. The uh, private detective by way of New Orleans. No, New Orleans. And, uh, and uh, he's been expecting a call from the kidnappers. And uh, the one he calls the skinny prick <laughs> calls. <laughs> and that's where we pick up. Winston's cell phone rang. The call came in as he, Grover, and Teddy were walking across the lot to the sidewalk. When answered. Yeah. Hey, Cabron, you got something for me? Yeah, everything I could get my hands on since yesterday. I should be able to get more later. Wynn glanced at Teddy and could practically see his heart drop. Teddy had admitted earlier that he'd started second-guessing himself and that now he wished he had brought in a negotiator. Don't fuck with me. I'm not. I'll give you everything I have. I just need a little more time to get it all together. Come on, it hasn't even been 24 hours. How much you got so far? This minute? About 32 grand. Cash. 32 grand? I wouldn't give back your dog for 32 grand. What do you take us for? I'm going to sell my house, hopefully today, but tomorrow at the latest. Should be able to get another 100,000, maybe more. What about the rest? The rest? Of your money, Cabron. Give a shit about your freaking house. We want all that movie money that you got stashed away. I don't have anything stashed. I'm telling you what I've got, my house, what I got in my hand. That's it. You think you can bargain over your own daughter? You know what? We're going to send her home in a bag. No, wait. Listen to me. I lost everything. Like a year ago, I had cancer. It all went to the hospital. Claire doesn't even know that, but she knows I was sick. Ask her. 
Are you there? I'm here. This is all I've got. Jesus, I just sold my fucking car. Maybe I can borrow something. Cash out my credit cards. I don't know. Whatever I can get. Teddy stared at Winston and mouthed, proof of life. And I want to talk to her. No. You can talk to her when you get the money. You have until midnight tonight. If you can't get it together by then, you'll be getting a bag a week. Each one with a different body part. <laughs> Ever see that old movie, uh, Frankenstein? You can put her back together like that. And see. And scene. You're a natural. <laughs> uh, if this scene could talk. If this fun. scene could talk. Now, I could just see Kevin Bacon playing that part. Oh, yeah. Yeah, people keep asking me. So you're going to play the part, right? Listen. <laughs> There's been some discussion about a book-to-film situation. You know, oh, but really? We're at the, yeah, but we're at the very, very beginning. And we that. know that yeah. happens really fast in Hollywood, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually over a weekend. Yeah. Um, yeah. If we're still talking in five years, yeah. we could still be talking about that. Um, yeah, things take a long time in Hollywood. And it's only because at every step of the of the process, there's a lot of people who finally have to agree to it. And by agree, I mean they have to agree to the money that's right. going to be spent. So it takes a while. But um, I mean, yes, I could I could play this part, but movies are expensive, and you, that's why movie stars are so important. So somebody asked me, who would you envision in that part? And I, the first person that came to mind is that Kevin Bacon would be great. He's got the look. He's got the reminiscent of McQueen thing going on with yeah. his fiery blue eyes and his blondish graying hair. Um, I think he'd make a great, great Winston Green. We'll see. See, see I love- are you out there, Kevin? You're listening. <laughs> Only six degrees to you, right? Right, right. <laughs> I, I one of our favorite things to do, right, is trying to figure out who would play whom, right, mm-hmm. and who would play Grover. Oh gosh, I don't know. You know, he's based on a on a on a stuntman that I worked with named Manny Perry. And Manny, I described this a little bit in the book, but Manny um, Manny got his start as a as a weightlifter bodybuilder down on Muscle Beach, yeah. you know, with Schwarzenegger, sure. all those guys. And um, somebody came and talked to him about, would you be willing to paint yourself green and be stunt double for Lou Ferrigno for an upcoming TV series, which was, of course, The Incredible Hulk sure. in the 1970s. Yeah. And Manny, you know, has since become really one of the the great legendary stuntmen. You know, uh, you know, up there with Dar Robinson and Hal Needham and Yakima Canute, you know, those people. Yeah. Um, but who would play that part? I don't know. I think it should go to an unknown. I think he and Lauren. I mean, Lauren is, you know, God, Angela Bassett would be incredible. Sure. You know. Um, you know, and if money's no object. And if money's no object, sure. Yeah. You know, Denzel. Sure. <laughs> it could be a great Grover Washington, but... Um, but I, I honestly don't know. I think, you know, I, I, those are decisions that I would leave to the people who have the responsibility of actually making the movie. Yeah. You know, Teddy Beauregard is the tough one to cast. Being half white, half Choctaw, from New Orleans, stocky, uh, formidable. That's a tough one to cast. Wow. I'll tell you who I saw in my head when I um, was reading this book was... Um, did you ever see Your Honor and who played uh, Brian, uh, Brian Cranston's. Cranston's buddy? 
No, I haven't seen it. But that was shot in New Orleans. Okay. Well, that character places who is um yeah. Oh, you, I'll you check him out. No, but I'll check it out tonight. I need something new to watch. <laughs> I'll watch that. All right. The first season mm -hmm. is going to drop your jaw. Really? Because I've now watched pretty much everything on your reel. So I got a pretty good taste of what you like to be involved in, mm -hmm. I think. One of the best. And we had um, Joey Hartstone, who helped write the show, on my show right after he dropped his first book. He's now working on his second. And uh, I said, dude, this is probably some of the absolute best writing I've read and heard in years. So I'd love, we're going to keep in touch on this. And you watch that first season and see if your jaw doesn't just spend the time on the floor. Oh, okay. Great. It's so stunning. Brian, Brian, and I, Brian is terrific. Brian and I started out basically at the same time. In fact, I remember he and I were both up for a commercial. You know, back in those days, you'd all gather in some casting office, sure. and that's how you knew each oh, other. Yeah, you know, exactly. in any casting office for movies or TV shows or whatever, but commercials, 50 of you would be there, and yep. you all get to know each other. And I got offered this commercial. I got the commercial. I think it was like a Mazda spot or something. So this is 1992, and I couldn't do the commercial because I got General Hospital and they had all these dates for me to, to work on and it conflicted. Right. So I said, I had to say no to the commercial. Brian got it. Oh, hilarious. I, and I only knew that because I saw the commercial. I went, oh, that guy that I keep running into at the commercial casting office got the commercial. And that year is the year he got Malcolm in the Middle. Wow. So he took off with Malcolm in the Middle, and I went the way with General Hospital. I still run into him at the. You were both in the Directors Guild, yeah. So I see him every year, usually at the the annual meeting. I haven't seen him for the last few, but yeah, probably because he was shooting Your Honor in New Orleans. Um, but you know, it's always kind of like, "How you doing, John? Yeah, I'm doing good, Brian. It's good yeah. to see you too, man." <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone. I so many people remember him from. Um, Oh, Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. But I'll yeah. tell you what, when you see him in, because the fray, he plays a judge, and the phrase, Your Honor, has its own double entendre throughout. Mm. And, and you're going to really appreciate that when it when you start sinking your teeth into the story. I'm going to stop because this is about uh, you. You know what? I'm just thrilled for his career. I think Brian's one of the the best out there. And, and he's a good guy. And I was going to say, really everyone says. He really enough. deserves it. Yeah. All right, one question that's burning a hole in my mind about Hollywood Hustle, and it's kind of loaded. I don't think it's going to be anything that you're not going to expect, but this kept coming up to me, and it's one of the biggest questions, and I'm like, how much of this book do you feel, do you think, is some kind of a form of self-therapy? Oh, all of it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really why I started writing to begin with. Okay. Um, and that's why I still write. You know, if this sold two copies, uh, I would still continue writing. Um, it's, uh, it, there were obviously things that I needed to examine about my life in Hollywood, my career, what that means to me, how I feel about it now. You know, earlier drafts of this were a little more contentious yeah. uh, and and cynical. And and I once I got into it, I realized, you know, that's a little too much of maybe my bad attitude about certain things. I should leave it a little more 
non-judgmental, let's right. say. Um, but absolutely, it was it was very therapeutic and even cathartic cathartic for me to write this book. Um, which is, but I mean, apparently I haven't gotten rid of all of it yet, which is why I'm writing another one about Hollywood with people dying. Yeah. Well, as I told you at the beginning, I would tell you, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. Thank you. It, it happened so quickly. It was over in a blink. I mean, I read this thing, uh, in two sittings easily and it, what I loved about it is you really do think, oh, it's just a little bit of this thing you've heard before, and then you get into it and you realize it's not what you've heard before. You've heard some of the setup before, but you haven't heard much of the resolution. Mm -hmm. And then to watch Winston's journey through it and what he became on the other end of it, really, I don't want to say eh, heartfelt. Yeah, I'm going to stick Thank with you. that. Yeah. Thank you. I wanted to leave it with a, on a good note. And it did. And uh, yeah, with some hope. Yeah. You know, because I think that's one of the themes. Is, hope is came hope. back. Yeah. You know, yeah. Hope came back to his life. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, uh, well, yeah, thank you. That's yeah. all I can say. Thank you. Yeah. Well, there's, I'm going to finish as we start to wrap the show because we've taken plenty of your time. But there's one more. We did the, if this scene could talk, but I do this other thing called rapid fire questions and it's just silly fun. And it's okay. I better take a sip here. Yeah, there's no, <laughs> there's no pressure to it. The first one has to do with preference, and there's only eight of them. It's going to be over in a blink. Writing instrument or keyboard? Keyboard. Beverage while writing, coffee or tea? Coffee. When celebrating, otherwise, what would it be? Whiskey. Practicing your art form, acting in television, film, or on stage? Favorite. Television. Yeah. Television. It's it's less boring. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um. Bigger passion, acting or music? Oh, equal. Okay. Yeah. I'll let that one Yeah. Go. Music's still a big part of my life. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to hear you play the drums, though. I'll send you the album. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> one step further. If you could be the absolute best at it and be only one, would it be actor, musician, or author? Probably author. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a reason for that because uh, everything else is is so communal to get it done. It's harder to get it done. Yeah, and one of the reasons I started writing like this, writing a novel, was that it was a it was just kind of a sacred space where I could just do what I wanted to do. Nobody's told me to absolutely change anything, right. which is not the experience you have in Hollywood. <laughs> it's not even the experience you have in a rehearsal hall with a band, right, Mark? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you have to change things. You have to adjust. You constantly compromise. Um, now, my publishers and the editor and all this, they had made suggestions as what to do, but nobody ever said change it or else. They all just said, here's, a, here's an idea. Here's a suggestion. Here's why I think so. But you can always tell me to go fuck myself. <laughs> and that's a quote. <laughs> yeah. Side so note. that's why, because that experience of being an author yeah. is just so powerful. And me. it's so, it's so satisfying on so many levels. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the first things, cause I've written nine now. And I told myself that when I got to number 10, I would go regular published. These are all self-published. I, I want to make sure I had learned all the processes mm -hmm. that I needed. But the thing I love is the fact that, you know, that when you're going about life 
and your mind drifts to, man, I sure would like to be home at, the, at that keyboard. You know yeah. that you've found yeah. the drug. Yeah. yeah. Somebody said, if, you, if a day goes by and you feel bad for not writing, then you're a writer. Yeah. yeah. And that every day that I don't write, I feel bad about not writing. Excellent. What's the best book that you've read lately? Something that just blew you away. Razor Blade Tears, S.A. Cosby. Yeah, I just started his new one. Um, All the All Sinners, Sinners Bleed, yeah. I, you know, I think he may be the best crime author writing today. I, I think um, uh, Blacktop Wasteland is what turned me on to him. Yeah. And uh, it turns out we have a mutual friend. I met him down at BoucherCon in San Diego. Um, lovely guy, just such a nice man. Um, but I think he's just got such a command of what he's doing right now that if you're interested in writing, you need to read. And if you're going to read, read S.A. Cosby. Yeah, he's stunning. What book is on the top of your TBR stack right now? You haven't gotten to it, but you can't wait to get to it. Which book? Yeah. Oh, God. I got to stack this high. <laughs> um, it's a Cormac McCarthy. And now I can't. It's one of the last two that he published. And now I can't remember the name of it. It was an impulse buy <laughs> at Powell's. I was in Powell's up in Portland uh, last November. Oh, that's shit. okay. So it's latest Cormac. Yeah, it's okay. one of the two last Cormac McCarthy album and, books. Yeah. And I can't impress you by pulling those up. I, I knew the essay cost. I thought you I were can, going to do yeah. that. But, no, you know, sorry. I'm going to look for it while we go to the next okay. one so people know that I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's easy. This is the last one. So you and your wife are joining me and Tammy for dinner at our home in Del Mar. You can invite two people, living or dead. Who would they be and why? Two people. Two people. We're going to round it out for a nice little sixum. Uh, two people, living, dead, anybody. Who would they be and why? Uh, Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders, for sure. And, um, boy, living or dead, is it real or imagined? Does that has got to be a real person. Should be a real person. Yeah, but no one's ever asked that on the show ever in two and a half years. So go. I'm going to go with whatever it is percolating in that cranium. Well, of I would yours. say James Bond if it were imagined. Okay. But but I think Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming. Yeah, would be would be the other one. Now that is a combo. I just, <laughs> All right. So why gives, Chrissy gives Hine? you an idea of what <laughs> the kinds of things that I like. <laughs> All right, you're finding the uh, book. I'm looking for it. I think it's it might be the passenger. Yeah. Okay, so that's sitting on your stack. Yeah, that's sitting on my stack waiting to be read. I'm a big Cormac. I've read Blood Meridian and No Country and, yeah. um, you know, a lot of The Road. I've read a lot of his stuff. But, yeah, uh, let's take 26, 20 seconds on um, No Country for Old Men. Let's talk about the movie. Can we do that for a second? Yeah, because I mean, it's one of those that I will stop and watch every time I see it, which has been lately a lot. It's been running on cable a lot. John, what is that thing that makes you, when you stop, you're cleaning the house, you glance over, your wife's left the TV on, you've already watched the movie four times and you go, I can do this later. Go over and you sit down and you're <laughs> complete. What is that? It's it's the excellence, really. I mean, it's just, there. it's so good. It's one of the few truly rare, exceptional translations of a book to film yeah you know and there's not many of them you know silence of the lambs is one the godfather is another um but no country for old men captures something about the west 
and the drug trade and the lawlessness and how evil runs into us so randomly. Yeah. You know, Anton Chigurh. Yeah. You know, with that Prince Valiant haircut. <laughs> you Which know, it is call, I think. I guess so. Yeah. But you don't know if it's supposed to be funny yeah. or not. All yeah. you know is that it's really fucked up. <laughs> and he's really crazy to be walking through life with that haircut. Yeah. But there's just something about the world that that, and that's part of what we do. Whether you're writing books, you're making film, you're doing television, you're creating worlds that people don't live in. Right. But we're curious about it. Sure. That's one of the reasons I love crime. I want to read. I want to learn about these people yeah. that live in this world because I never could. I mean, I'm still looking both ways when I cross the street and waiting for the walk signal. Yeah. You know, I'll do that in New York City. Right. Where nobody does it. You right. Know? Right. But um, I think there's just something about how well that movie vividly takes us into this place that none of us know. That uh, that is occurring all around us. That's the other thing about it. This is going on all around us, like a parallel universe, like a parallel universe, and we're we're virtually untouched by it. Yeah, until it hits us randomly. So I, you know, that's the only way I can answer that. Last thing, and I'm going to go back and finish here. I'm thinking of you know, I'm notorious for saying what's your favorite scene. So I'm sitting here thinking of my favorite scene, and it's when he goes into that gas station. And the guy gives him his change back and he says, heads or tails. And that whole dialogue between, well, you have to tell me you what it's to, for. You have, to, you have to choose. Yeah. You have to choose. Yeah. And call it. The, call it. Call it. Friendo. And, yeah. <laughs> the metaphor, the nuance, the cluelessness of one, the determination to just sow evil in the other, the randomness. Like yeah. you said, the parallel yeah. universe, the guy's just, I, I got to close up. Well, yeah. what, it's just. Yeah. But, and, and how that pays off in the, in the final scene yeah. of the movie, when he goes to kill, um, uh, Llewellyn's wife. Right. You know, and he's trying to go, but call it, you have to call it, you know, the, with this twisted pretzel logic that he's trying to apply yeah. to it. And she's the only one that says, but it makes no sense. You don't make any sense which metaphorically is very true. Right. This kind of evil doesn't make sense in the in the in the in the pantheon of humanity. Yeah. That's not who we are as people. We don't like to see people killed. We don't want to see people hurt. But this guy believes this is his mission to come and the best I can is to come and kill her, which he thinks her husband told him to do. Yeah. Remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, He's yeah. like, well, your husband told me to. And she's like, what are you talking about? He wouldn't do that. She knows he wouldn't do that. And yet he's still, still sitting there demanding that she call it. Yeah. You know, and she's the only one that can look at him and say, well, I guess Woody Harrelson did say, do you have any idea how crazy you are? Yeah. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you mean in the sense of this conversation? No, I mean in the sense of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and she's, you know, and she's completely powerless yeah. in the face of this insanity of evil. That's why there is no, there is no clinical definition of the word evil. I mean, you know that, right? If you were to ask a psychiatrist define evil, evil, they would say there is no definition of evil. That's not a psychiatric term. It's a word that we have applied to a kind of behavior that goes over the line. 
Mm. You know, and I, I didn't realize that until I saw it on a talk show. I think it was Merv Griffin. Yeah. Of all places. Oh. You know, you're dating yourself. Or, there, yeah. Or man. Phil, <laughs> Phil Donahue, maybe. Yeah. It's a little more recent. Yeah. But yeah, evil is not. It's. It almost comes down to why do we explain a bad guy's behavior with the, you know, what we call the rubber ducky scene? It's, right. it's not necessary. We don't need it. What these people do, whether in a story or in the world, does not make sense. It doesn't need justification. It's the behavior that counts. Yeah. Well, I'm really going off on a thing now. It, <laughs> I, I like it. But we did, we did finish. I do want to know. Why Chrissy Hine? I got a pretty good idea about Ian Fleming. We're back at the dinner, uh, mm -hmm. Joyce. Chrissy Hine, one of my all-time favorite bands. Oh, my God. She's, to me, she was just one of the most interesting people in rock and roll. And I love rock and roll. So, yeah. I mean, you know, yes, I'm retirement age, and I still play hard rock at home. Yeah. You know, I don't go to many concerts anymore unless I can put my feet up. Right. But I will go. And you're, you're I saw plugs, Bob yeah. Seeger a few years ago and he was just great, you know, but he was also 75. Yeah. And still rocking. Um, you know, rock and roll has no age limit. But Chrissy Hind broke through as a woman rocker, unlike anybody else. She always had her own voice, she always had her own way of doing it. God damn, she looked sexy standing there with that guitar. Yeah, she was just hot. Is it my imagination, or did I read recently she's still touring? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's with the, I think, one surviving pretender, Holy which bananas. is Martin Chambers, the drummer. Yeah. Uh, the two other guys passed a long time ago. Um, but yeah, she's still, she is still making real music. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and doing it for the people. So, and she's just, she's just interesting. Read her book. Okay. Yeah. Read her autobiography. It's really fascinating. And Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming, because he created the character, being James Bond, that gave me the impetus to do what I do. It was when I was five years old, my parents took me to see From Russia With Love oh, at yeah. the drive-in in Medford, Oregon. And I slept through most of it, but I remember peeking over, especially over the back seat and seeing the the fight between Robert Shaw and Sean, and Sean Connery yeah. on the train. Oh, yeah. And Robert Shaw's got that garrote wire in his watch, and he gets it around him and all that. And I just remember saying to myself, that's what I want to do. I thought I meant I want to be James Bond. Right. But once I got older and realized, oh, it's a movie, that's what I want to do. I want to make something that is as involving and entertaining as that. So thank you, Ian Fleming, wherever you are. And I will say mission accomplished to you because you do that every day in your acting. Shall I tell you my Sean Connery story? Please do. So I'm a bartender uh -huh. at Morton's, right? And I see Sean Connery and his wife and Roger Moore and his wife. Oh, wow. And Michael Caine and his wife. Remember, he played uh, uh, Harry Palmer in The Ipcris File. So here's two of the James Bonds and the other great British spy played by Michael Caine. And they're all having dinner together and they're laughing and they're having fun. And there's, you know, and I'm watching with such envy, these guys, you know, and the whole restaurant, they put them right in the middle of the restaurant and the whole restaurant are all sneaking looks over at the great English stars. Sure. Right? Well, Sean Connery gets up and he heads to the bathroom. So now's my chance. 
and I follow him into the bathroom. And by the time I get there, he's washing his hands in the sink and drying off. And I say, Mr. Connery, I just want to let you know that, you know, you've inspired me to, to take this path in life. And thanks to you, I, you know, everything I am now, I owe to you. And he looks at me in my bartender uniform and says, thank you very much. And he walks away. (laughs) But I got to tell him, yeah, <laughs> you know, little did he know just yeah. another year or so I was out of the, out of the restaurant business and on my way in Hollywood. Nicely done. Yeah. Talking he could have told me to just, you know, yeah. kid piss off. Yeah. You? Get bent. But he had, he had the class enough to say thanks. Well, as I always close the show, I have this one stock question and I know you're brand new as into it because you're a debut author but not for long because it's uh, it's clear that you've got a new path that you're going to crush. But I always ask, what is your best piece of writing advice? So however you started, however you got to where you today, what's that piece of advice that you'd say, you know, if I'm going to speak to other writers who want to make a go at it? Well, I mean, in a simple sense, it's trust your desire. You know, um, trust your instincts, believe in yourself. All that's true, but trust that desire to write. You know, if, if you really want to do it, trust it. It's because it's there for a reason. It's telling you that you want something from this. Having a side hustle doing audiobooks, uh, I did a lot of them during the pandemic, including that in those were uh, seven of Isaac Asimov's books. Oh wow! Including his autobiography, I Asimov, and there's a there's a passage in that book that I hang on to, where he describes how all he ever wanted to do in life was go up in his New York apartment. He had this little room up a set of stairs to this tiny room, and he was a big guy. But he would sit there at his typewriter. You know, ultimately, I think he used a computer, but. Yeah. For years, for decades for him, it was a typewriter. And he said all he wanted to experience was, and the the quote was, sit there at the keyboard as the words appear on the page like magic. That's the experience of really writing when you can barely keep up with your fingers. Yeah. Because it's just coming from somewhere. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. Could be the research or God or wherever, but it's flowing through you. And if you can find a place where you can get to that feeling, where you lose time, that's the one that you have to seek out. So I, I encourage any writer, whether you're beginning or you're on book 200, and I think Asimov wrote about 400, um, seek out that place where it's all yours and it's only you and wherever that inspiration is coming from. And guard it zealously. There's a book by um, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi called Flow, Being in the Flow, right? So when you find that place, when you're completely engrossed in something that time no longer exists, Mm. is that magical point. And Mm -hmm. I have found what you just said makes me think of that book where you literally are just, you're trying to keep up with your fingers. And the moment that you stop and you go, oh, Oh geez, I've got to make that appointment, or I've got to do. It. You've you've taken yourself out of the flow. You've you've kind of severed that lifeline to creativity. 
And uh, so I'm with you. I, I think yeah. that if you if you have that heartbeat, we said it earlier, if you find yourself going, I can't wait to get back to that. Something feels like it's missing until I get back to that time. Yeah. Stephen King talks about it. I I recommend his book on writing. Oh, yeah. You know, and the audiobook version of it because he's hysterical. He narrates it himself. Oh, I he's a very guy. funny man. But he talks about how it's so important to cut carve out that time during the day pull down the shades, get the dog outside, you know, do whatever you have to do to isolate yourself in kind of an isolation booth. Yeah. And so you can get to that place yeah. where it's just you and whatever's coming out of your fingers. You know? So it's not easy and it takes practice, but every writer does it because every writer seeks it out. Yeah. Yeah. And that point makes me think of something. And I, it, there's a lot of little random thoughts that came to me as I was preparing for this, and I didn't make notes of it. But one has just popped into my mind because it made me think, I used to date this girl in grad school, and she was on As World Turns. And I used to say to her, she'd love the craft of acting. And she, she'd love being in the soaps because she had one place to go to and that place to concentrate on. I said, what's your least favorite thing? She goes, well... The hardest thing is learning volumes, pages of lines, especially if they call you the night before and said, oh, this scene's changed. We're emailing mm -hmm. you or at that time was mailing you the new lines. And it makes me wonder, how do you, what's your method? And this is just all my own personal thing. Your method of being able to absorb those lines, especially when it's a volume of lines, be present. Because you know that if you can do it in one take, you're everybody's hero. Yeah. If you keep going off page and then you're, I mean, how, what's. Well, I, you know, there's a couple of tricks, I guess. The trick is to not let it be a trick because a trick is always kind of shallow. Um, way back in college, I learned just, I think from a psych class that memorization is, is always stronger if you look at something iconically, which is looking at it and hear it iconically, iconic and iconic. So reading your lines out loud is just a really good way to kind of get familiar with them. But years ago, I studied with a, a, an acting coach named Jeff Corey. Um, Jeff is long gone now, but he, he really changed my life in that he taught me how to memorize, like this scene we just read about Winston on the phone. Right. If I were to look at that as a script and try to memorize it, the last thing I would try to learn is the actual specific dialogue. What I would try to memorize is what happens in this scene. My phone rings. It's the skinny prick on the other side. I don't want to talk to him, but he's the one I have to talk to. Um, because I saw him the day before at my house with my granddaughter. So those feelings come into play, allow that to come in. And we talk about how I'm going to sell my house and I've got some cash in my pocket and, now, and, I, and I need proof of life. These are the things that happen in the scene. And that's how you memorize, especially volumes of stuff. Yeah. Because there's really there's really no way to kind of cram that minutia in. You need something to associate it to. Yeah. So a lot of people, I mean, some people will sit there and go, I don't know, I got a picture of a, you know, of a gallows. And so when I think of the gallows, I remember that long speech. That works too. Yeah. Free association is really powerful for that. But for me, and what Jeff taught back in the day, 
um, at his house out in Malibu, <laughs> which is where we drive on Saturday mornings. Um, that's how I learned to do it. And that's the, and I still do it today. I still just kind of break down the bones of what happens in the scene. And that makes it a lot easier for me to remember it. Well, you know, having worked and grown up in the business on both sides of the camera, I watch actors differently having acted before. And I, I love to watch the technique or the gift that a particular, and this is all kind of uh, in my overtime stuff uh, that I'm going to use later. But one of the things that I've learned watching you is, and you do it so stinking well. And if I use the word real, I don't mean it in a cliche way, but but your your performances are so real, almost as though you just thought of it at that moment. And I'm not meaning that in a flippant way, but it's like, you know, when all of a sudden you think about something, oh, and then you mm -hmm. you just react. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's uh, it takes a lot of work to get there. <laughs> uh, making it look easy takes a lot of hard work. Maybe that's um, what it you is. Know, but uh, I, I've gotten to a place now where <laughs> certainly what, I, what I'm often cast in, especially outside of General Hospital, is what I call restrained evil in a suit. I'm usually the bad guy who's really well dressed. Yeah. And um and which is fine with me. If that's a brand, I'll take it. Yeah. Um but you know, you watch the old guys. McQueen's a great example. You know, he would cut reams of dialogue out of scripts because he knew film was visual. You yeah. know, you had to see what was going on with these people. Spencer Tracy is another one. He was just so economical at everything he did, but it was full it felt full. So, you know, all I can say is there's no easy way to get there. Um, you have to spend a lot of time trying to break things down. And, and this is another way of figuring out what happens in the scene. This I have in common with this guy. You know, they oh, say, yeah. as we say, the, the, the more personal, the more universal. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't like some whiny, skinny prick on the other end of the phone either. Right, I, that would really irritate the hell out of me. That I have in common with him, um, you know. So you have to find all of those things, and it's a lot of breaking down. It's a lot of investigation. It's a lot of detective work. Yeah. But once you do it, then you can lay back, and that's at least that's what I do. I lay back, and I I've got all those thoughts and feelings in my being, mm -hmm. and so I can just kind of react to Vince Vaughn. Yeah. You know, hey, we were quoted 12. Not by me. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I, I never said 12. You know, I think Tammy, uh, she's going to love the fact that I remember this. I think she said, and I quote here, your character, I think it was in uh, True Detective. He, he was a real asshole. He was. He yeah. was a bad guy. He was a very bad guy. She goes, he does that well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I played that kind of a character in Bosch too. Yeah. There's just something about me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope you are, and I feel like you will be as successful, if not more so, writing Thank as you. you have been in acting. Oh boy. From, from your lips.
Put me your lips to God's ear. To God's ear. And uh, Hollywood Hustle is just the beginning, folks. Once again, it's Hollywood Hustle. And if you want to learn more, go to johnlindstrom.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. This has been great. It's a great way to spend a, a Tuesday morning. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you. Be good. Thank you, guys. Thanks again, John, for spending time with me. Now, folks, next week, Monday to be exact, I have yet another special guest. Remember the movie starring Robert Redford called Three Days of the Condor? Well, its creator, James Grady, has a new thriller on his hands called The Smoke in Our Eyes, and he will be our special remote guest on Monday the 12th. Until then, I thank you in advance for two simple little requests. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you do me a small favor and go to thethrillerzone.com. Go up to the menu, click on Rate Show. Just leave us a message. Tell us how you like the show. Give it a five-star rating if you like. The second thing you could do for us is to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That address is youtube.com slash thethrillerzone. Okay, that's it for the housekeeping notes, and that's it for another episode. I'm your host, Dave Temple. I'll see you next time for another edition of The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.